Welcome to the Designing a Humane Future podcast. My name is Sarah Tranum, and I'm the host of this series that explores some of the most complex challenges we face and examines them through a design and systems thinking lens. The goal of the podcast is to better understand deep systemic issues and to learn about the socially innovative approaches being used to address and resolve them and that can help us design a more humane future for everyone. In this two-part episode, the focus is the future of work. In part one, we'll explore how technology and the economic impacts of the pandemic are shaping jobs now and the opportunities in the future. In part two, we'll focus on universal basic income as an innovation that can help address uncertainties in the labor market and ensure that everyone has the basics they need to live. The world of work is continually evolving for centuries, but especially since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, new technology has transformed how people live and work. The fear of technology taking over jobs is not new to this generation, nor is the promise of it making our work and lives easier. Job precarity is also nothing new. As scholar Eloisa Betty explores, it is certainly not unknown to generations of laborers who have experienced the lack of stability, safety, and equity of work. Children, women, people of color, immigrants, and migrant workers have historically been a staple of the industrial capitalist model, providing cheap, quote-unquote, flexible labor, seen as key to business growth and competitiveness. As Betty explains, the very existence of job precariousness was not conceptualized until it started to affect the Western male breadwinner in Europe and North America. Precarity has been central to industrial capitalism, and it continues to be embedded in digital capitalism, as we've seen through the emergence of gig work. Through the pandemic, the same trend has surfaced. Technology and economic uncertainty continue to most impact those who are already the most marginalized. Coming up, you'll hear from experts who help us unpack the current trends we're seeing in the labor market. We'll also look at ways to build a post-pandemic economy that centers on making work more equitable, inclusive, and dignified. What is the data really telling us about the shifts happening in the labor market? Craig Lamb has authored many reports and policy recommendations focused on labor, skills, technology, and innovation policy. I spoke with him about what he's seeing and what it can tell us about where we're headed. My name is Craig Lamb. I'm currently the uh, co-founder and principal of a research institute called, the, the, called Shift Insight. My work is kind of centered around looking at the impact of technology on general changes in the labor market and changes in the nature of work and the kind of skills that people need. And Overall, what we're sort of seeing, and it's no surprise in Canada either, is that just sort of the way that the economy is made up and moving towards a technologically driven economy, both like growth in the tech sector, but also you know the pervasiveness of technology across the economy, we're basically seeing very spiky growth and mostly growth for people at the top of the income distribution. So looking at people with Education and experience, honestly, never been a better time for those people. People are earning much more and there are much more opportunities for work for individuals, you know, with the college, university education. But at the same time, we're seeing sort of both wage and job decline for people at the both the middle and the, the low 
low end of the income distribution. And not only are jobs diminishing, but they're becoming more precarious. There's we've seen kind of the shift towards the Uber model of labor and the lack of job security and things like that. So this kind of like growth at the top and then slow growth and, and wage diminishing at the middle and the bottom end of the income distribution is one of the big challenges that I think we're seeing in Canada. So while there are ample opportunities for workers with more education and access to training, those already navigating precarity and low-wage work are facing an increasingly difficult path. A major concern is the disproportionate impact of automation on different sectors and groups of workers. While it's estimated that only 1% of Canadian jobs are 100% automatable, at least 42% are at a high risk for automation. Office work, transportation, trade, sales, and service sectors are predicted to be the most impacted. Those with less education and who earn less income are more vulnerable to losing jobs to automation. Craig discusses the unbundling of jobs into separate tasks. So while the job itself may not be done completely by a robot or AI, by automating individual tasks, they may add up to a fundamentally different job. This unbundling can disrupt whole job categories, which can have negative consequences like displacing workers. But it can also provide the opportunity to offload repetitive tasks onto technology, which can open up more time for work that requires creativity, problem solving, and the better fits of workers' unique skills. There is such a tendency to think about a job as, you know, one specific task. And if that task gets automated, then the job's eliminated. But the reality is most jobs, people do a variety of things. Some are automatable, some are completely not. And one of the interesting pieces is that as we automate certain tasks that we do, and I think everyone's really seen that in their daily life. You know, we no longer have to do so many routine-oriented things, but it doesn't mean that we're completely obsolete. In fact, it actually frees us up to do the things that we're more uniquely positioned to do, such as like in-person interaction or creative problem-solving type of tasks. And that can actually like make people more productive and it can help to create jobs overall. But there certainly will certain people whose job is primarily automatable and they will have their job tasks eliminated or their entire job eliminated. But I think what's really interesting and I think what's going to be really important is as these certain job tasks get eliminated and jobs completely change and become much more about people doing the things that they, they're uniquely good at and technology doing the things that it's uniquely good at, that kind of unbundling is really being able to, once again, go back to the firm-sponsored training and, and other training resources to enable people to kind of make that transition a bit smoother. So, you know, teach them how to interact with that technology and kind of like how maybe they can go about reorienting themselves, focusing on other job tasks that technology like once once you automate a major part of your job, is there something else that they can do within the company that will actually add a lot of value? That's a, that's a central challenge to make that transition as opposed to the traditional like displacement model, which I think can be really, really dangerous and also like a bit short-sighted, I think. It is very interesting to see how jobs change over time. And honestly, like it, it's been happening forever. We, we constantly see that. It's like even the way that traditional jobs are done changes all the time. And, you know, 10, 15 years, they become no longer recognizable. But oftentimes, the same people are still doing the job. It isn't just technology itself that can eliminate jobs, but market forces. 
Industries that do not innovate and adapt technology fast enough can be outcompeted, which can in turn result in job loss. Our economic model that is dependent on growth creates this tension and leaves workers in the precarious balance. When we're thinking about automation, I think it's an initial reaction to think about the reduction or job elimination, I'd rather say job substitution, factors associated with automation. And I think that gets people pretty concerned that technology is going to take jobs away or remove certain job tasks and make things kind of obsolete. But I actually think the bigger danger in Canada is that we won't automate enough. We don't adopt technology enough and that our businesses will become obsolete and actually kind of go under and be like outcompeted by other businesses that do adopt more technology and become more productive. And I'll explain a little bit. So all the data recently is pointing to the fact that when a business adopts technology in a certain industry, they actually improve their productivity and then they're able to actually overall expand their employment. But where automation does impact jobs is in the businesses in that sector that fail to adopt technology and get outcompeted by those that do. And essentially the whole business will go under in a way. So it's really about kind of this competitive pressure to either adopt or perish. And I think while Canadian businesses have been able to kind of thrive and survive in, in you know, things like more traditional mining, manufacturing, et cetera, I do think that there's a danger that we will be outcompeted by other businesses internationally, and we just simply won't have enough growth. And I think that could potentially contribute to more job loss. So it's that kind of like strange interaction between technology and labor. But at the same time, I do recognize that when companies adopt technology, they do automate certain tasks and it eliminates the need for certain types of labor, particularly with routine-oriented, um, both physical and cognitive labor. As well, we've also seen evidence that middle management, management and oversight become less needed, which I'm sure not too many people will actually complain about. The tasks themselves become much more consistent and there's less need for, for oversight. The challenge is also if, if jobs are specific individuals no longer are needed within the company, is there a way to help them transition to the more the roles that are needed, you know, like more on the, like the marketing side of things or the actual like oversight of technology and integration technology into the company? Other experts see the threat of automation as more imminent and severe. Floyd Marinescu is an entrepreneur, technologist, and the executive director of UBI Works. You'll hear more of my conversation with him in part two of this episode as we explore the universal basic income plan UBI Works has proposed. Floyd has seen the effects of automation, depressing wages and forcing workers into lower wage positions. He looks to the past and to the present to give us clear clues as to how technology will impact jobs in the future. To underscore the role of automation in transforming work, Floyd brought a robot on stage with him for a speech he gave at the 2020 Ontario Liberal Party Convention. Floyd Marinescu. I'm the CEO and co-founder of C4 Media. That's a software developer technology education company. And I'm also the founder and primary donor to UBI Works. 
uh, as well as, a, as its uh, executive director. I was invited by a candidate uh, who was running for Ontario Liberal leadership named Alvin Tejo. Uh, we had advised him early in his run uh, on basic you know, talking points, supporting research. We would do that for any party. We've also advised the Green Party. We've, we talked to the NDP as well. So, But he invited me as, as an expert on stage. And UBI Works, uh, we provided a, a robot to come with us to kind of underscore the point that automation is here. It is now, the robots are already here. It's not something that we're worried about for some distant future affecting jobs. Uh, so I'll tell you, I'll, I'll talk about, about this with a story. So my father and uncle were in Ontario's automotive manufacturing sector, and they were among the, the hundreds of thousands of Canadians and, and millions, up to 4 million Americans, who, who lost their jobs primarily due to automation in the early 2000s when China entered the scene and started to, to create downwards competitive pressure. Now, China entering the scene in, in manufacturing is often blamed as a bogeyman for why we've had job losses here. But, but China was a catalyst. It, it was a catalyst much like the pandemic was a catalyst to have a sudden reduction in income for local manufacturers, which triggers automation. We have to automate to survive, to stay competitive. And that's what happened. And that's why research looking back at the decimation of manufacturing jobs in the late 90s and early 2000s, found that five times more jobs were lost to automation than trade. So my, my father and uncle were among them. And, and looking at the research, we can see that in the presence of job displacements, the, the one big takeaway I'd like your audience to take away from this is lower incomes. Lower incomes, we're seeing multiple decades of evidence that, that productivity is not leading to greater wage growth. Wage growth is stagnating at the middle and at the bottom. Uh, despite increases of wealth, increases of productivity, uh, we are seeing a fall in the share of income going to workers. Uh, instead, more is going to capital, uh, capital meaning uh, you know those who can deploy technology. So workers are simply becoming less important in the equation of, of productivity overall. And you can see it in so many of the numbers. And uh, many Nobel Prize winning economists um, over the decades were concerned about this point of what happens when uh, workers are simply obviously still needed, but but their marginal uh, benefit to increase productivity is far lower uh, than, than, than hiring more robots or installing more support software that can do the work. And and we're now entering a period of hyper-acceleration of, of this type of automation. And I think if you want to know the future, you have to understand the present. And, and what's happening in the present is re reduced middle-class jobs, uh, less wage growth at the, the bottom half as well as in the middle deciles of income earning. And I think we can expect more of the same. So if if wages keep being stagnant while cost of living goes up uh, and, and people whose jobs were lost to automation um, have to seek lower income jobs next, because that's I didn't finish that story about my father and uncle. That's typically what happens. If, if you spend your whole life building a craft for a specific skill and suddenly you can no longer find a job in that with that skill because it's no longer valued. It's now been devalued because technology is cheaper than workers, what do you do? You know, your next job will be whatever you can find and you're not, you don't have the skills for it. You didn't train for it. So what we see in the research is that uh, in the presence of, of automation, the deployment of new robots, for instance, in manufacturing sectors, is that displaced workers end up finding lower, lower pay jobs or they're competing with, with lower income replacement workers who can now do the same work with simpler and lower education levels because the software or the hardware that's been replaced is, is, is more uh, efficient. So automation means lower wages. And that's why I think everyone should be up in arms. This is a crisis.
Training is key to helping people navigate the shifts in technology, whether it's incremental changes and in tasks or the elimination of whole job categories. Canada lags in its investment in training and Canadians' access to upskilling opportunities. There are several countries offering their citizens government-supported training. In France, the Personal Training Account and Singapore's Skills Future programs are just two examples that offer annual training budgets for individuals to upgrade their skills. These funds are available to every worker every year they're active in the workforce. These programs address recorded inequalities and in access to training and recognize the critical role of upskilling to help people move from precarious jobs to stable, well-paid work. Craig speaks to the challenges workers face in transitioning across the labor market in Canada. What is also very interesting is like as these changes happen and as jobs become more technical and the less technical jobs are kind of getting, getting squeezed out of the economy, the actual ability to transition between one job to another from like a declining industry to a growing industry is really becoming broken. So I think that is a major challenge that we're seeing. So how to actually take an individual, you know, from like a declining manufacturing gig in, you know, rural Ontario to a, a job where people are coding in a, in a software firm. That ability to move people through that economy is becoming increasingly challenging. And frankly, Canadian employers aren't investing enough in skills training as well. So the onus is really becoming is on the individual in so many senses. So it's, it's really quite a challenge to actually navigate these kind of labor market disruptions. And to be honest, with the pandemic, this kind of the impact on the lower end of the lower end of the income distribution we've already seen. So it's just it's almost getting worse for those individuals because they're typically in the in the roles that you know require face to face interaction. And they've been hit the hardest. So you know the people at the top are usually the people that can make the transition to uh, remote work and you know online sales. And so the hit wasn't as as dramatic for them. So the people that are doing were already doing well are doing better, and then the people that were doing worse were doing much worse. So I think that's a big challenge that we're we're seeing. It's this, the inequality in the labor market that has been made starkly clear during the pandemic. There are many voices calling for a post-pandemic recovery plan that centers around issues of equity and access to the tools needed to find dignified work. I had the opportunity to chat with Ajem Sultana, who is a co-author of A Feminist Economic Recovery Plan for Canada, a report that was produced by the YWCA Canada and the Institute for Gender and the Economy at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. She talks about the need for flexible, attuned training to help workers upgrade their skills. Hi, my name is Anjum Sultana, and I'm currently appointed as a fellow to the Public Policy Forum. I have a background as a public affairs strategist with expertise in gender equality, public health, and youth engagement. I think at the heart of looking at the skills development infrastructure is that it needs to be fit for purpose and really needs to prioritize the learner's circumstances and priorities. So that means being flexible in the ways in which these types of learning opportunities are delivered, uh, the need for it to be just in time to actually address and respond to the emerging needs in the market and the emerging needs in, in the labor force. So really looking at things like 
like micro credentials to respond to the fast and changing nature of work and being flexible. So it allows people to still continue their employment while also upskilling in the process. Uh, we also see the importance of looking at previous and established opportunities for skills development and seeing what types of supports can be provided to really ensure that they are as inclusive as possible. So looking at apprenticeship programs and looking at co-op programs and looking at skills development programs that not only provide skills, but do so in a way that addresses structural barriers. So also coupling them with wraparound supports like access to childcare, access to transportation in some instances. And I think one of the things we've seen is, you know, democratization of skills training and looking at are there opportunities to do partnerships for skills training? So looking at not only educational institutions and employers participating in the skills development process, but also engaging civil society and nonprofits and charities that may already have trusting relationships with equity-seeking groups and have that space for wraparound supports as well. So that's something else that we've started to see. One of the things, of course, that is a barrier that also needs to be addressed is actually ensuring that in this COVID era where more and more training is happening online, ensuring that people have access to not only strong and stable internet, but also access to the devices to actually enable that learning. So that's also part of part of what's needed for a skills development ecosystem and infrastructure. Access to technology is critical to ensuring everyone can participate in work that is increasingly online. In the early weeks of the pandemic, we saw images of children with borrowed laptops sitting outside of shuttered schools to access Wi-Fi because no internet connection was available at home. People with makeshift offices clustered near libraries and other buildings where free Wi-Fi could be accessed. The quick shift to remote work, school, and services underscored the unequal access to stable internet connections and the devices needed to get us there. It's also put a spotlight on what happens once we connect and our experiences online. As Adjum explains, there's more work to be done in the post-pandemic economy to create an online culture that is inclusive, allows for meaningful collaboration, and is attuned to workers balancing remote work with many other responsibilities. I think what we've seen is overnight, a lot of workplaces have transitioned to remote work. And some companies, some organizations, some workplaces perhaps had policies and procedures and protocols in place to enable that. For others, they had to innovate during the pandemic. I think one of the things, though, is how do we ensure that culture remains, collaboration is seamless, that there's still this feeling of belonging. So looking at organizations that have actually leveraged hybrid work or remote work to do things from actually creating greater digital fluency. So anywhere in the organization, it's a digital first organization, just ensuring that people have not only access to the devices, but also the practices to enable that inclusive way of operating and working. It's also looking at recruitment and actually seeing that you're no longer tied to recruiting just from one particular geographic area. I know for many organizations, they've now opened up their recruitment to people all over the country. As long as people are able to connect virtually, do remote work, they've now been able to connect with people across the country to not only 
join as uh, team members in an organization, but also future collaborators, future partners. And this has actually increased not only the diversity of ideas, but the innovation that stems from that as well. I think also we've seen organizations really think through how do we enable colleagues to not only work, but works in a way that enables them to balance their different responsibilities and the different roles they play, uh, especially things like caregiving responsibilities. So that's something else uh, as well we've seen around not only having that strict nine to five, perhaps way of working, but ensuring that people are able to work in the way that works best for them. And we've seen organizations step up in interesting ways around increased social protection with respect to increasing resourcing for mental health services, increasing also uh, supports for access to internet, having an internet subsidy, having a phone subsidy. Those are things that we've seen organizations actually put into practice into their workflow. Though there are many opinions and forecasts, no one knows for sure what the future of work will look like. We're still trying to understand the trends that emerged during the pandemic and how they'll play out, like urban workers leaving cities when virtual work offered the opportunity to connect from anywhere. Is this temporary or the start of a larger movement? Some companies have committed to staying remote or maintaining a hybrid workforce, while others never left their offices. A big question is what is lost and what is gained by making the temporary shift online a permanent fixture in the post-COVID world. Some people question if we can really collaborate in the same ways online as in person, and if the information is shared and ideas formed as effectively as when people are in the same room. Craig discusses what he sees in the recent data. We do see a bit of an eagerness to return to in-person work or at least some sort of hybrid model of work. I think all of the initial predictions of the death of cities or the, you know, increasing like people can move wherever and work from wherever. I think I don't necessarily know if this is going to be a major trend or an acceleration of that trend. Um, I do think that there will be, it will be important for people to stay within a, a reasonable vicinity of their office. And, and employers don't seem to, um, based on sentiment data, like they don't seem to really want to decrease their overall office space. So I, I think what we're going to really see is kind of a move where possible to a more hybrid model where Individuals are given a few days to work at home, but when possible, like it, it still come in to take a meeting or just interact. I think over the course of the pandemic, and especially as we kind of move towards like more knowledge-based work, and we have kind of seen some of the challenges associated with working remotely, especially with regards to collaboration and the kind of tacit knowledge exchange and things like that we're, we kind of miss when we're isolated. And I mean, as you like from all these skills data research that I've done, it really shows as jobs become more complex and more knowledge-based, like both the very technical hard skills are really critical, but also, you know, people really like collaboration, teamwork, and that kind of emphasis on team-oriented creativity becomes really important. And I think there are limitations to that when working remotely. So I think, I think where possible, like people will move to a bit of a bit of a hybrid model. That's my general take based on like the, the data I've seen. However, people are moving out of cities in Canada very quickly, but I actually think that has more to do with housing prices than anything. We might see perhaps the 
combination of being able to work remotely and the like overall housing crisis that we're experiencing in Canada, like maybe that combination will actually accelerate a move. Who knows? You know, like I think it's kind of interesting, but overall, I still think that there's a, a need for in-person interaction. There's a need to live in cities. There's a reason that everyone, you know, these things have existed for ever. Like going back to my original point around a move towards a more intangible knowledge-based economy. One of the key pieces is of that economy is kind of the like knowledge spillover interaction, the kind of like tacit knowledge exchange. And it's why like, for example, incubators and accelerators operate in the model that they do because it's like so important for people to creatively interact and identify issues and try and like use their technological expertise to solve them and things like that. In this more knowledge creative economy, like having the ability to like jam in a team is actually really important, but hard to quantify. If we're going to meaningfully rebuild a post-pandemic economy and shape a labor market that address issues of equity and access, it's essential that those most impacted and vulnerable to automation and unexpected disruptions are part of getting us there. Anjem discusses how sharing power and giving voice to those who are all too often left out of decision-making processes are essential to shaping policy and shifting how we value labor. Power is something that is present, you know, in all aspects of society, power and privilege, access to opportunity, access to decision making. And with respect to this plan that we put forward, the Feminist Economic Recovery Plan, it was really looking at power in public policy. And how do we actually ensure that public policy is meeting and responding to the needs of communities who are most affected by the pandemic? or other structures of oppression and inequitable opportunities. So some of the things that we call for are things such as diversity and representation, ensuring uh, you know, the decision-making bodies around pandemic response, recovery, and rebuild are actually uh, gender-inclusive, are uh, looking at the communities who are most impacted. And one of our recommendations was on a task force really looking at the gendered impacts of this crisis. And I'm really happy to share that the federal government did take up that recommendation and they established a task force for women in the economy. And this was an important step to ensure that when we're thinking about recommendations for pandemic recovery, there's a gender equity lens that's placed upon it, an intersectional lens placed upon it. It's not enough. Though diversity and representation needs to also be coupled with investing in the organizations that have been stepping up for communities during this time. So really investing in organizations such as feminist groups, uh, gender equality focused organizations, women's rights organizations, because they're able to not only address and support communities require support, but also look at solutions that are being done in the community, in the field, that we could potentially scale up across the country. For us also, when writing this report, it was really important to think about data collection. It's not enough to take action, uh, but it's really important to monitor how is that action being taken up? Is this action working for all equity-seeking communities? Um, really looking at this data collection from an intersectional lens so we can measure what we've done, but measure where else we need to go and ensuring that we're measuring what matters. 
Just going back to intersectional policymaking, you know, a perfect example of this, really looking at public policy through a gender lens, through an intersectional lens, is looking at, for example, access to employment insurance. So in the earlier part of the pandemic, you know, when people uh, lose their job, you know, the first support systems that they should be able to access is employment insurance. However, the way the system is built, and of course, there's opportunities for reform, and actually that's what's coming up in, in the next year. EI, the way it's currently structured, it's very difficult for people that are working in part-time work, in seasonal work, in precarious work to access. And what we see uh, time and time again is that women are overrepresented in those types of work arrangements. Racialized communities are overrepresented in those work arrangements. And so for a policy like EI, some would say is gender neutral, we actually see in terms of who's able to access it, the way it's currently designed, it doesn't actually work for many women workers. So that's something where we see, you know, the importance of really understanding the relationship between power and economic recovery, because it actually can make an impact in who's able to access support or who's able to access government programs if it's not originally designed with gender equity and intersectionality in mind at the beginning. The economic fallout from the pandemic disproportionately impacted women. The five C's, caring, cashiering, catering, cleaning, and clerical jobs that are all overwhelmingly represented by women, put them on the front lines. Women working in the charitable and nonprofit sectors were also hard hit by the pandemic. Anjum discusses some of the policy recommendations that were put forth in the recovery plan to address the issue of gender disparity and to properly value and fund care work. I think that's such an important word around value. Um, and ensure that care work is seen for what it actually does for society. It, it enables the rest of the society to operate. It's what actually enables the rest of the economy to operate. It also happens to be, for example, low carbon work. So as we think about as a society around climate change and thinking also uh, reducing our carbon output, uh, investing in sectors around care enable not only taking action on on climate change, but also ensuring that we're able to provide people with everything they need to live a good and healthy life. And with respect to the plan, we made many recommendations around actually investing in the care economy, investing in things like childcare. And so recently, for example, the government has put forward, the federal government of Canada has put forward $30 billion over five years to create a nationwide early learning and healthcare system. This is great and something to be applauded. But we also need to look at how do we actually build this in in a sustainable way? How do we actually make this just part of the way government works? And one of the recommendations we had is around actually ensuring, uh, you know, 1.5% of Canada's GDP is related to care. And, you know, this is when you think about it, not a significant amount of, you know, when you think about the percentage, but it actually enables that long-standing sustainable investment in this often neglected part of our economy. And not only is it important to invest in care and ensure that, you know, there's enough childcare spots and enough spots for long-term care and many other aspects of care, but it's also important to invest in the people who are providing that care. Very often, the conditions of work are the conditions of care. And so we really need to ensure that not only are we 
creating those spaces, but we're also investing in the workers who make that space possible. So investing in compensation, investing in decent working conditions, ensuring benefits like paid sick leave, but also creating an opportunities to build a career in care work, investing in professional development. So that's all part of the puzzle when we talk about funding and valuing care work. A key metric for measuring the health of the economy is the number of jobs created or lost. But what these numbers don't tell us is what kind of jobs these are. Are they stable, well-paid? Do they offer benefits, provide paid sick days? One of the transformations brought on by the pandemic is the reevaluation of work. The Great Resignation, as it's been named due to the large number of people leaving their jobs. While Canada has not seen the same levels as the U.S., where over 25% of the total workforce quit in 2021, there is a tangible shift underfoot globally as workers seek out opportunities that better align with their priorities. As employers struggle to bring workers back into the fold, recent studies point to a gap between employers' understanding of what workers want and what employees say they're looking for. It is not just about more pay or the ability to work remotely, as many employers believe. For workers, it's about being valued and feeling like they belong. It will be essential for employers to bridge this gap, to create decent work where people are seen and valued. The Feminist Economic Recovery Plan underscores the importance of not just creating jobs, but creating decent work, especially for women, racialized groups, and newcomers to Canada. For much of the pandemic, the group that has been hardest hit are women and gender diverse people. And we saw this because of many of the sectors that are disproportionately done by women, whether it's, you know, care work, of course, but also tourism, hospitality, retail, accommodations. Uh, There's a lot of layoffs, there's a lot of closures, and that impacted uh, women's labor force participation. Um, As the pandemic moved on, and as, you know, vaccination rates were going up, and as we saw more recovery, we saw women's labor market participation start to increase again. But for us, you know, it's one thing to have a job, it's another to have a decent job. And I think that's something where we really need to ensure those high standards are met, ensuring that jobs are decently compensated, ensuring that jobs have access to critical leave, such as paid sick leave. We saw how important that is in the pandemic. Uh, And so one of the things that we call for is ensuring that at least 10 days of paid sick leave is part of what is uh, put forward as part of our labor conditions and decent um, uh, labor practices and decent working conditions. Uh, We also talk about increasing access to immigration status for workers who are migrant workers who may be on temporary or precarious immigration statuses. And so that's something, you know, ensuring a pathway to citizenship for workers. That's part of what we also see as important for decent work. And I think ultimately, just really ensuring that when we talk about our metrics for success around economic recovery, we don't just talk about jobs, but we talk about decent jobs. We ensure jobs that ensure a decent standard of living as well. In many parts of the country, there's been conversations about minimum wage, and we've seen increases in minimum wage, but really thinking about perhaps moving that towards a living wage, ensuring that people not only have enough to live on, but are actually having enough resources to thrive as well. 
One of the lessons of COVID-19 is that jobs are only one piece of a functioning economy and healthy, thriving society. Social infrastructure must be in place to ensure workers have what they need to succeed in work and life. Affordable housing and social supports like child care and help for those escaping domestic violence must be part of a post-pandemic strategy. These are parts of systems-level changes needed to truly address the inequality and injustice we saw magnified by the pandemic. So often infrastructure is seen as roads, bridges, really that bricks and mortar, if you will. And that's definitely part of the puzzle. And, you know, when we think about this pandemic early on, one of the recommendations from a public health perspective is to stay at home to stay safe. But that requires access to a safe and affordable place to live. And so part of what we've seen is how important housing is. uh, And it's actually one of the social determinants of health. And so for us, when we're thinking about response and recovery, investments in affordable housing have to be part of the puzzle. It's something that impacts not only, of course, shelter, but it's very important for economic security. We also need to look at housing as not only, you know, a shelter, but a part of our social infrastructure. So housing, shelter services, when we think about things like childcare and other elements of community services, that's also part of infrastructure. It's social infrastructure. So this is something that we also need to think about in our post-pandemic recovery as well. And uh, I mentioned a bit earlier about the importance of access to uh, stable, high-quality internet and also the devices that are part of it. And part of the reason for this is that this is very much linked to social capital. This is very much uh, linked to access to information, access to opportunities. I've spoken to so many over the course of this work that we did with folks across the country, especially in rural, remote, and northern communities, and how critical that is. Um, In addition to, of course, housing, internet, um, uh, you know, healthcare, we've discussed a bit, it's also access to transportation. So that was another element in some of the work that we've been doing is speaking with our colleagues in rural, remote and northern communities, how critical road infrastructure is as well. So that's something that we do need to think about in our post-pandemic recovery to ensure that any person across the country, regardless of where they live, can access what they need to thrive in our society. I think when people often think about economic recovery, there's a lot of policies around jobs, around working conditions, around different types of resources. For us, when writing this report, there was a really clear understanding that An economic recovery without addressing things like gender-based violence and things like hate crimes, for example, is an incomplete recovery. You know, an economic recovery actually can't happen when we're not addressing issues like gender-based violence. And so with respect to a shadow pandemic, this is actually a term UN Women has called the increase in gender-based violence that's happened in the aftermath of the COVID pandemic. As COVID was going across the world, we were seeing the first waves actually happening in Italy, in uh, you know Europe especially. We were seeing right away an increase in gender-based violence, anywhere from 20 to 30 percent. And as the pandemic started to come to Canada, we were seeing also, unfortunately, the rise in gender-based violence. And this is actually heightened um, throughout the many different waves. And this is actually something... For us, um, thinking about uh, economic recovery, 
you can't have an economic recovery in a climate of hate, fear, and violence. So that was really important to address. And what we've seen is this advocacy has worked. Um, one of the things that uh, feminist groups have been calling in Canada for many decades has been around creating a national action plan to end gender-based violence. And we saw over the last couple of months um, increased focus by the government of Canada and actually implementing such a plan. So we we look forward to seeing what comes out around that. Uh, but this is really important when we think about economic recovery as well. We've seen small businesses the hardest hit by the pandemic. For those that have made it, we need to help them pull through the continuing uncertainty and make it possible for new businesses to launch. It's important to keeping Main Street alive for the richness it gives our communities and is also key to the creation of new jobs. In Canada, small businesses employ 68% of the total labour force and contributes 38% of the GDP. Anjum discusses ways to better support small businesses, especially those owned by women and equity-seeking groups. I think first and foremost, it's been especially hard for small and medium-sized businesses to deal with the pivots, to deal with the uncertainty, to deal with just the challenge of ensuring consistent employment for their employees. I think what we need and what we've started to see, of course, during the pandemic is targeted supports, supports for small and medium-sized businesses. What we also encourage is actually doing even more tailored supports specifically to women-led businesses, to Black-led businesses, to Indigenous-led businesses, and businesses of diverse equity-seeking groups, because we've seen, uh, you know, just like um, the gendered impacts, for example, in this pandemic, we've seen that across the board in small and medium-sized businesses as well. But moving beyond recovery, thinking about response and rebuild, really looking at the power the power that governments have, the power that organizations have to really invest in their communities, invest in small and medium-sized businesses. So one of the ways to do that is through procurement policy. Every organization also has different expenses that, that they need to take on on a regular basis, different services, they need to procure different resources. Taking a look at that and using an equity lens, seeing if there's a way to actually build in you know, a percentage of your procurement going towards women-led businesses or businesses led by racialized communities. That's one of the ways we can also invest in small and medium-sized businesses to ensure not only recovery from this crisis, but also resilience to the next crisis as well, and really investing in our communities. As of the recording of this episode, Canada reported an unemployment rate of 5.5%, with a gain of over 335,000 jobs, offsetting the losses from the month before. Meanwhile, 1 million positions remain unfilled. Some of these vacancies are in high-contact jobs that people walked away from during the pandemic due to the risk of contracting COVID. But these numbers also speak to the inability to effectively match those seeking jobs with the work available. Craig discusses the need to better align job seekers and job openings by moving away from outdated models to more targeted and supported training initiatives. I just think it's about matching and better. And one of the things that you'll constantly see in the data is even in industries where companies are really like adopting technology and automating, they're always reporting a lack of 
either labor or skill shortages. But at the same time, there's the other challenge where we also see people out of work or people being displaced or not able to find jobs. So I, I, I think it's the central challenge is this sort of like jobs without people, people without jobs thing and like playing a better and trying to find better ways to actually match the excess supply of labor with the increased demand for jobs and skills and tasks. And there are sorts of really interesting models out there that I think are worth exploring. And as a bundle, they're collectively known as uh, workforce intermediaries, typically. But really, it's about kind of taking a bit of a, a different approach to training and job upskilling and, and matching. The traditional approach that we, we've taken Canada with second career is sort of a human capital supply side approach to skills training. So it's based on our understanding that skills are important and, and education is important. Go get a skill and I'm sure someone will need that. This is more of a both the supply and a demand side approach to it. So it's really about working with closely with employers to understand their skills needs and then working closely with a supply of labor or a, you know like a group of people and educators to really train and provide the resources to individual populations to kind of gain the skills that employers and that local labor markets need and then helping kind of like make that transition smoother between individuals looking for work and what skills and work the employers are actually looking for. And a lot of it is actually about dismantling more antiquated notions of how employers act for skills or look for skills and their over-reliance on out-of-date proxies like education or experience markers and really trying to like get to what employers are actually looking for and whether or not they can invest in people and invest in people's skills and like work with these workforce intermediaries to build like a supply of skills that actually meets their needs. It just strikes me so, as so interesting to simultaneously see people losing losing work, but always hearing employers talk about not having enough skills. There's so much tension, and I think there needs to be a better job at matching those two. As we've discussed, training is key to ensuring people have the skills needed in the jobs of the future. But the training itself is only part of the equation. A systems-based model that includes governments, businesses, educational institutions, unions, as well as a broad base of stakeholders is essential to allowing as many people as possible to meaningfully engage in the future workforce. A significant investment of money and cooperation are needed, but so is a shift in mindset about the role of government and the private sector and ensuring the welfare of all citizens. Instead of relying on governments to enforce regulations for businesses to treat their workers ethically and pay them fairly, there are models where this relationship is managed through a shared sense of accountability and mutual benefit. One example is FlexSecurity, a model that has been adopted by Nordic countries. FlexSecurity is an integrated strategy for enhancing at the same time both flexibility and security in the labor market. It tries to balance employers' needs for a flexible workforce with workers' needs for security and confidence that they will not face long periods of unemployment. It's been a particularly defining part of Denmark's labor strategy. And it's not just about pay. This model also allows for greater choice and opportunities for growth, allowing workers to move into a different job or industry, knowing that they will have the financial supports to do so. The FlexSecurity model is not without its critiques and detractors. As with all systems, there are flaws and rooms for improvement. However, models like these are gaining more attention. Embedded in Denmark and other Nordic countries is a collective sense of responsibility for the care and welfare of all people. 
As the world grapples with big questions about the role of technology in our post-pandemic future, many people are looking to these nations as examples to follow. While Canada may not be ready to transition to this Nordic model, it may be poised to further broaden its social safety net. A universal basic income offers a way to provide opportunities and stability while expanding the economy. Floyd explains why universal basic income can help us navigate a future with increasing automation while maintaining a middle class in Canada. So we need to find a way to make automation and technology work for us. And I think the way it can work for us is by having a basic income, not only as an income supplement, but as a means to help people have the long-term ability to make plans, retrain, and and improve their lives and not fall into a permanent hole of, of lower income work. So this is what we're seeing. And now with machine learning, we have predictions that we could see a 40% reduction in the number of tasks done at work, um, uh, potentially up to 40% reduction in jobs in a way that's much faster than, than, than our education system and our social assistance system can adapt. This is something we should be really concerned about. Just to, to flare on the dramatic, in a few years, Elon Musk will press a button And the entire fleet of Tesla cars will become self-driving and compete with Uber. We're going to see millions of people out of work very very quickly. And and if all those people are seeking lower income work next, um, that's that's bad news for the labor market. So we need to be concerned, um, again, not because of a sudden uh, future with no work, but a future of low income work where we've effectively moved to a two-tiered society that resembles developing countries. And I don't think any of us want to see that happen to Canada. So, so basic income is essential for this modern workplace so that people can, can have a means to retrain, so that we can maintain pathways into the middle class, which is shrinking. And frankly, so that all of us can, can benefit from a middle class lifestyle as technology is reducing the costs of a lot of goods and services. Um, I think basic income is a key part in our transition to a future of greater abundance where automation does, does a lot more and more of the work and people will have more free time uh, to retrain for better jobs that appeal to their needs and interests. We'll continue to explore the universal basic income in the second part of this episode. In part two, we'll look at the impact of Ontario's basic income pilot through conversations with a basic income advocate and recipient of the program, as well as an expert who studied the data from the pilot. We'll also learn about UBI Works' proposed basic income plan and how it can contribute to the Canadian economy. Keep listening or bookmark part two to come back to later. Thanks for listening.